Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Maggie Shipstead. She is the winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for First Fiction. And in 2021, she was a finalist for the Booker Prize. Her new book is You Have a Friend in 10A, which is published by our friends at Knopf. Maggie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jason. It is an honor to have you here. And Maggie, let's jump right into this excellent collection. Uh, And first, let's talk about the opening story, The Cowboy Tango. Uh, You open this story by speaking of a gentleman who owns a ranch. And this man, uh, Glenn Otterbosch, is looking to hire a wrangler. Uh, One of the candidates you write smelled like he'd swum across a whiskey river. How, Maggie, does the phrase whiskey river fit into the story about a cowboy tango? And how do you use this type of phrase to help you set the tone? Um, you know, I feel like it's never really that deliberate. It's just mm-hmm. what, you know, comes to me in the moment. Mm-hmm. And but you're right, it does, you know, as you start a story, you are establishing so many things um, in terms of the voice. And sometimes it just comes to me right away. And other times I'll really struggle, you know, should this be first person, third person should be past tense, present tense, and those technical questions, um, you know, really change the way the story sounds and and the way it feels too. But the story I wrote um, the fall of my second year of my MFA program. So it was 2007, I was 24. Mm -hmm. um, And I'd been driving back to Iowa from California. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, I I thought, you know, oh, I should write a cowboy story. (laughs) I don't really know why. I think I was in a big Annie Pearl phase um, and also just driving across kind of the Western landscape. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I got I got back to school and and uh, had a story due. And I just kind of remember sitting down and in some ways having that constraint of that I'd given myself of writing a cowboy story was really helpful. But then I was starting from nothing. So I, I did write it through. Um, I believe in the order the story still kind of has. So yeah, mm-hmm. that first paragraph just for myself, I think was important for establishing the tone. Yeah, thanks. And um, of course I am um, drawn to that phrase because of the song by Willie Nelson. Uh, and does anyone not love Willie Nelson? Do you like Willie Nelson? <laughs> I do like Willie Nelson. I did not actually know that was a song, so. Sure is. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder what it says about a person if they don't like Willie Nelson at the juncture of his career. Um, yeah. yeah, me neither. Well, thank you, Maggie. Uh, Mr. Otterbosch, um, Glenn, he quit his job at a ski resort uh, to take over the ranch in this story. Where is this ranch and where was the ski resort? The ranch is in Montana. Um, at the time, I had not been to Montana. <laughs> Um, I later spent a couple months there and a big chunk of my last novel, Great Circle, is set in Montana. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I made a decision where his ski resort was. Um, mm-hmm. It could have be, it could be in Montana, but I think I had it more in my head that it was in Colorado. 
mm-hmm. or Utah, that he was coming from somewhere else um, into mm-hmm. this particular sort of milieu. Yeah, absolutely. And how, uh, Maggie, do you think, uh, how is managing a ski resort like managing a ranch? Um, I mean, I think he's someone who's skilled with logistics and Mm -hmm. with the expectations of tourists, um, which his uncle who bequeaths him the ranch was not a people person. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think he comes into owning and running the ranch with some ideas about how to modernize it and how to make it more profitable, which he sort of quickly implements. just in terms of, of making it more desirable to people maybe looking to spend a little bit more money, which is basically what all ski resorts do all the time. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, well, thank you, Maggie. Um, in this story, Mr. Otterbosch hires a very young girl, Sammy, to be his wrangler, uh, and he soon falls in love with her, despite the fact that she is exponentially younger than him at the moment that she's hired their relationship of course lasts several years uh does he fall in love with her maggie because he loves her or because she is the only female who is around i think it's yeah he has very limited options like she's someone who's there all the time he really respects her as a horsewoman she's an excellent rider um he's a really good rider himself and so he appreciates her competence. Um, and I think there's an aspect that, you know, he's aware she's much too young for him mm-hmm. um, at the time he hires her. I think she's still in her late teens. And uh, so he knows it's not possible and he's not fundamentally a creep. And so I think in mm-hmm. some ways he has this sort of freedom to idealize her, to, to, to be in love with her without having the pressure of having to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you, Maggie. Um, This question is going to come back around later, Uh, but Sammy takes the horses uh, on this ranch who are too old or no longer serviceable up to an area called the Pearly Gates and shoots them in the head. Uh, This is part of her job. Uh, Maggie, when animals die in a story, especially when they are killed, it can elicit a strong response from the reader. What is the thought process for you as a writer Um, to include scenes like this in a story? And can you think of other stories where violence against animals, necessary violence or otherwise, is an effective storytelling device? Well, I'm pretty allergic to violence against animals when I feel like it's manipulating me. And Mm -hmm. it is such an easy way to get a response from someone. I've noticed this in times when I've read you know, applications to a writing program or a a conference or something like that. And you'll get a story that doesn't really have anything to say. It it can't elicit um, emotions from the human subjects. And then somebody will just randomly do something horrible to an animal and you still feel it even though it's not earned at all. So Mm -hmm. I'm really not a fan of that. I try not to do that. Um, In this case, I mean, I think the the shooting of the horses is a mercy. Um, And within the sort of context of this ranch it's a sign of respect it's for the best horses they get to sort of end their days suddenly relatively painlessly um Mm. in this this sort of open country they've spent their lives in um and so but at the same time it's it's a burden for sammy to have to do this to horses she cares about and um i grew up with horses and and had horses until i was in my mid-20s so i do Mm. appreciate the you know the um 
the loss of, of putting down an animal. Um, but yeah, I tried to, tried to make sure it wasn't cheap. Yeah. And, and you did a great job there. Um, I have never spent time around horses. Um, I mean, I have, but sparingly, um, and part of this area, the pearly gates is that some of the horses skulls are nailed up onto trees. Uh, uh, for you, as someone who has spent time around horses, when a horse is being led up to this area, would the horse recognize what is on the trees or would it just be like, oh, home, I'm taking a walk? Yeah, I don't think they'd have any idea. Horses are pretty dumb. Mm. I mean, a horse might recognize, you know, the sort of recent corpse of another horse, mm. I think maybe, but I'm not actually sure. But something mm. that's skeletal like that, um, I think, I think would be pretty safe. Yeah. Thank you, Maggie. Um, in this story, the character Harrison Green is described as a man of great patience. Uh, what is a man of great patience and what are the positives and negatives of being such a man? <laughs> so Harrison Green um comes to the ranch. He's related to Mr. Otterbosch. I think they're cousins. Can't quite remember. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he is, uh, he's an artist um, mm -hmm. and he's recently divorced or split up from his wife. Uh, mm -hmm. And he's someone who has sort of infinite patience to make these very detailed um, paintings. And yeah, I mean, I think someone with a lot of patience has to be comfortable with just incremental processes. Like I think writing a novel takes a lot of patience because you can't mm -hmm. do it in a day. You have mm -hmm. to just add a little tiny bit every, not every day, but you know, for a long time, day by day by day. Um, yeah. And he's someone who sort of does that in a more visual sense. And, and for him, in a way it doesn't for all patient artists, um, mm -hmm. it also sort of, uh, carries over into his personal life. So he's also interested in Sammy, but he's not, he's willing to give it time um, and sort of play the long game. He doesn't need results right away. Yeah, thank you so much. And when you say you cannot write a novel in the day, for some reason, the first thing that popped into my mind was like um, this era in New York when you had these kind of cocaine-fueled writers like uh, Brett uh, Easton Ellis and Jay McInerney when they were um, mythologized to have gone on these benders and written their novels in, you know, three days or whatever. Do you think this is real or was that just like mythology building from their standpoint? I mean, I don't know. It's, I think it's probably mythology building. I'm sure they wrote them fast. Like yeah. I've written a short story in a day and I've written a novel. Mm -hmm. My second novel astonished me was five months from starting it to selling it, which is mm -hmm. really fast. But I mean, five months and, and a couple of days is a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know. I also don't, I'm just skeptical okay. any story any story like that plus mm. like I think what you would churn out in three days while super high and coked up would not be great no matter how much they want to think it is yeah and whether the product they produce is great or not is up to other minds besides mine but um another writerly question for you before we uh leave this first story here you said that this was one of the earliest ones you wrote or the earliest one you wrote and that you kind of chose to place these stories in the order that you wrote them in um did they 
also just turn out to be naturally sequenced that way. In other words, is the collection telling us anything from A to Z, or um, is it strictly something that you sequenced temporarily uh, based on when you wrote them? No, they're actually not in the order of when I wrote them. Um, oh. The uh, second story, Acknowledgements, is actually the last one I wrote. So oh. Cowboy Tango and Acknowledgements were 10 years apart um, in when I wrote them. But it was hard to figure out how to sequence them because they don't have a lot in common. Um, and they were written over such a long time. I had to sort of think about it in terms of varying the tone. Um, and I purposely split up stories that had similar subject matters. Like there are um, two or three that sort of have to do with Hollywood. And so I didn't put those all right in a row, mm. that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. Um, and we're gonna get to acknowledgements after the break. But first listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Maggie Shipstead. Bookin Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM allows you to buy audiobooks directly through your favorite local independent bookstore like Explore Booksellers. You continue to put money back into your local economy and help local bookstores thrive. Please navigate to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your local independent bookstores in the process. I'm back with Maggie Shipstead, author of You Have a Friend in 10A, which is published by our friends at Knopf. Um, Maggie, I now want to jump into the second story of your collection, Acknowledgements. As a veteran of several creative writing workshops, I thought this story was fantastic. Uh, The narrator of the story, D.M. Murphy, a writer who writes stories featuring a narrator named D.M. Murphy. Um, This narrator, and this is a quote, um, is drum roll, please, unreliable. Um, Explain the drum roll, please, Maggie, in the context of a story about a student in a creative writing workshop? Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, I also spent a lot of time in workshop. I did my MFA, so two years, and then I was at Stanford in workshop for two years, and then I've taught a little bit, um, and I wrote this right after I taught for a semester uh, at a Mm -hmm. a different MFA program. Um, So yeah, I mean, of course, the idea of an unreliable narrator is one of those phrases you just hear over and over and over again and become sort of almost numb to. Uh, within a mm-hmm. workshop and so the narrator of the story is a writer his first novel is coming out um, and so he's very self-aware um, of, uh, of, of himself as a writer and a narrator and so he's sort of um, you know trying to have this sort of winky sly superior humor about everything and the right. effect is mostly that he's just very annoying. Yeah thank you and um in the beginning of this story, uh, the writer, the narrator, D.M. Murphy, compares himself to both Hemingway and Nabokov pretty much right from the jump. Uh, why is this, Maggie? And is this the typical behavior of an MFA student? Why compare himself to Hemingway and Nabokov as opposed to, say, 
like Dan Brown and Sally from the Bagel Shop. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, he's doing it in this way that's a little bit like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I were the next Ernest Hemingway? Ha ha. And there's this, you know, it's sort of a self, you know, delusion that he's sort of seeking, um, you know, support for, but couched as a joke. There's just layers of insecurity going on with this guy um, as sort of a blind item gossip piece. I read an essay recently by a literary writer that I found incredibly annoying and sent a mm. screenshot of it to a friend. And, and the gossip came back that when this guy was uh, in workshop, he made it, he would say explicitly to people that he didn't think he had any peers except for Chekhov. Mm. <laughs> so it's something, you know, that really happens. People sort of decide in their own minds that they're, they're a legend in the making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why not? Um, at one point of this story, Maggie, D.M. Murphy states, uh, quote, a whole narrative fell into my mind, delivered onto me by a dozen or so muses in Lululemon, uh, end quote. Maggie, can you talk to us about finding inspiration in the mundane, uh, specifically in, you know, corporate chain shops such as <laughs> Lululemon? Yeah, I mean, I think inspiration can come from anywhere. I think like, you know, looking back on these stories in this collection, they all came from different places. Um, mm-hmm. This one, you know, I, I, I'd encountered this sort of voice that this story is written in, in a satirical way. I've encountered it in a serious way many, many times, a sort of lofty uh, uh voice uh, that's really reaching for literariness that might not be there in terms of the thought behind it and so it sort of mm-hmm. came the idea the inspiration for the story came to me um just sort of this irresistible uh desire to kind of lampoon it but also humanize this person um mm-hmm. i don't know if i've if anything's been sparked by something as uh, as corporate as lululemon for me mm-hmm. um sometimes like other stories in here uh, like the title story, I think was sparked by a New Yorker piece about Scientology. Mm. Um, Lambs is set at an artist residency, not unlike one that I did in Ireland. And we had this weird communal dinner. So often it's an experience mm. or something that I read. Um, mm-hmm. But DM Murphy is, uh, he has his sort of flash of, of inspiration, which I think sometimes if you're really looking for a flash of inspiration, you can sort of make it happen. Yeah, for sure. And um, I'm going to uh, derail this conversation for a moment since you just brought up the um, inspiration of uh, Scientology. Um, for a while, I was super fascinated by this. There were all the books coming out by like Lawrence Wright and others. Mm-hmm. And um, then there was the film, The Master uh, with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. Um, what about the Scientologists and Scientology specifically inspired you to um, to write about it? When I used to live in San Francisco, I would go down to like the BART stop and there would be Scientologists on the left doing stress tests. And then on the right, there would be like a chorus of people in Guy Fox masks yelling at the Scientologists. And it was just a really weird scene. But um, what inspired you to um, use that as inspiration? Yeah, I think so. I think what I read in The New Yorker was mm-hmm. a piece by Lawrence Wright before yeah. the full book came out. It's probably an excerpt. And it was when mm-hmm. I was at Stanford. 
Um, yeah, and I live in LA now. So of course, mm-hmm. they're, they own a ton of real estate. There are these yeah. huge buildings with all the windows covered and big Scientology signs. And it's very mm-hmm. odd. Um, and yeah, I had a similar phase where I was sort of consuming as much information as I could. But that story, so you have a friend in 10A, is kind of a take on Katie Holmes when she was married mm. to Tom Cruise. It's it's different, mm-hmm. you know, but I I also liked the idea, and I do it a little bit in um, my book Grade Circle, of kind of riffing on something, a story in a way that would already be familiar to a lot of readers. So a lot of people knew about Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise and, and Scientology. And so you're sort of starting from more than zero. Like most stories, you're sort of establishing everything. But if you're kind of using this pre-existing clay of pop culture and celebrity gossip, you can kind of accelerate it a little bit. And so in that story, I sort of, it's not Scientology. It doesn't really have a name, but it has similar kind of um, theology and terminology. So I made up a lot of lingo and and things like that. But um, yeah, I just, I liked, uh, it's fascinating. And so I was sort of borrowing that fascination for a little piece of fiction. Yeah, and there's of course that clip um their listeners are probably aware of, of like Tom Cruise jumping on Oprah's couch because he's so excited about uh, Katie Holmes. Is there ever like a celebrity uh, figure that you find out is a Scientologist and you just like kind of slap your head? And you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it happens all the time. Although it's, it's funny now because it's been around for so long how some actors are born into it. Like I think yeah. Elizabeth Moss was born into Scientology and Giovanni mm-hmm. Ribisi and you're like, what like what does that mean and and I think there's sort of you know a stigma around it from the outside which is you sort of feel sorry for them in a way like I don't know how fair it is but at the same time it's just such a strange belief system and and they've done lots of really bad things (laughs) and so yeah yeah, it's uh it happens all the time although in LA like I uh you never know you know anyone can be one yeah for sure and you know I'm sure that I have all kinds of beliefs that people are also like scratching their head about like I believe the Carolina Panthers are a good football team and I'm sure everyone (laughs) else is laughing at me um all right well um let's jump back into uh the second story of your collection acknowledgments for a moment um when D.M. Murphy the narrator and the writer in the story is asked uh what one of his stories is about his answer is the elusive nature of truth. Um, Is this a good answer or a bad answer? (laughs) I think it's a ridiculous answer. Mm -hmm. Um, I think things can be about that. I think lots Mm -hmm. of literature, in fact, is about the elusive nature of truth, but it's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty pretentious, which Dia Murphy, you know, has pretension in spades. Um, so yeah I think he's not very he's not very confident he's not very self-aware he doesn't understand that this could be grading and also that he kind of hasn't earned his grandiosity although I guess it's arguable whether it's possible to earn grandiosity it seems still annoying even from the most famous writers yeah yeah the answer that I would get along those nature um, along those lines if I'm asking someone what a story is about is life <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, always fun. Um, again, Maggie, in this story, uh, you write, and the narrator states that everyone 
is a flim flam artist on social media. Uh, what does this mean? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's this sort of truism that mm-hmm. we're all putting our sort of best selves or a, a sort of mm-hmm. idealized version of our lives on social media in order to make other people jealous or, or, or maybe not with that intention, but, you know, the end result is that people feel inferior because they're just seeing a very edited version of other people's lives. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily true, especially now that social media is older and, and more ingrained. I mean, I think some people mm-hmm. make a real effort to be um, honest on it, uh, mm-hmm. but he, uh, <laughs> yeah, he sees everything as sort of a conspiracy to make him feel insecure <laughs> because mm-hmm. he feels insecure and he doesn't really think he should. And he's always kind of trying to find the root of it. Yeah, do you have um, any thoughts about Elon Musk buying Twitter? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a bummer. Um, yeah. I guess we'll wait and see what happens and what he does, but I don't think the problem with Twitter is too too little freedom for people to say what they think. Yeah, I um I used to live above a, a friend who worked at Twitter and he took me to tour their offices uh, at one juncture after they had moved down onto uh, Market Street in San Francisco. And um, judging by what I saw when I was kind of behind the curtain, I don't anticipate any changes at all, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but, but who knows? I mean, I know Elon Musk is one of these like larger than life figures, but as far as what I witnessed, I'm not really sure how that's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people working there. It's a big company. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll see. Who knows? Um, Maggie, is it ever a good idea to workshop a story about other students in that workshop? (laughs) I would say no. Um, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. And this has happened. When I was at Iowa, Mm -hmm. there was a story somebody workshopped that was set at a party at Iowa. Mm. Um, And so it was unclear how one-to-one it was but Mm. everyone was a buzz about it you know for a few days because we're all trying to figure out who was who and what what he Mm. was saying about everyone and it Mm. wasn't it ended up not being that harmful but the scenario in the story where dm murphy has been sort of rejected by this woman and so he writes a story kind of a vengeful story with an explicit sex scene that's clearly about her and she's in the class um i know this has happened too it's happened to somebody i know and it was it's really traumatic. It's a really cruel thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, once you're sort of out of the workshop, things are sort of fair game. Yeah. I'm sure you read uh, the bad art friend kerfuffle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So many of those things happening. Well, um, thank you, Maggie. And finally, uh, and listeners, we have really only talked about um, three stories in this collection. The collection is outstanding a top-notch short story collection, especially the title story, You Have a Friend in Tene. Uh, But Maggie, I told you we would come back to this before the break. Uh, When DM Murphy's story is being workshopped in an MFA program, um, and as an aside before I continue, is he in Boulder or some other Colorado university? I don't think I name it, but yeah, I think it's It says in the Rocky Mountains, that's all it says. Yeah, Um, yeah. I thank you, but Maggie, as this story is being workshopped, one of his classmates, uh, 
who is described as having the wardrobe of a celibate witch, which definitely made me laugh uh, for a very long time, states, I think when violent animal death is a plot point, you really have to earn it. Otherwise, it seems like a cheap way to manipulate people into feeling something, end quote. And my question, um, again, for you, Maggie, is what is the difference between the violent animal deaths uh, by the pearly gates in the first story of this collection, the cowboy tango, um, and the violent animal death in DM Murphy's story, because there is a difference. And how would you um, kind of compare both of these to say like old yeller or something like that? <laughs> um, oh, that's funny. Yeah, I forgot that was in there. It's clearly just a statement of my own opinion. Um, yeah, I mean, again, I think like anesthetizing an animal uh, is different than particularly mm. animal cruelty. I hate animal abuse in stories, although um, I understand it's it's a fact of the world and that literature as a whole can't ignore it or mm. you know make make it so the dog always lives. Mm. Um, but I do think it has to be in service of something larger as opposed to just sort of a desperate ploy mm. to elicit a response from the reader. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. And thank you for writing this wonderful collection and for coming on this show to talk about it. Listen. <laughs> oh, sorry. I realized I just said anesthetize instead of euthanize. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's yeah. quite all right. Um, we will make sure that we leave that in there. Um, so everyone knows. Uh, I, I remembered. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I knew what you meant. Um, okay, well, thank you, Maggie. Thank you for writing this book and for coming on to talk about it. Uh, listeners, I have been speaking with Maggie Shipstead, author of You Have a Friend in 10A, which is published by our friends at Knopf. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Maggie Shipstead for joining me. Copies of You Have a Friend in 10A can be purchased from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'. Quail Ridge Books is Raleigh's trusted community bookstore, hosting author events, book clubs, writing workshops, and more since 1984. Visit them in North Hills, Lassiter District in Raleigh, North Carolina, or online at www dot quail ridge books dot com